you have your Bible, uh, please, Romans 6, if you're not already there. And let me catch you up just a little bit in the flow of thought as we walk through the book of Romans. And I know I say this every week, but I'm really trying to impress upon your hearts and minds so you'll always know when you turn to the book of Romans exactly what's going on. But Paul has laid out in the first four chapters in the greatest detail that anyone has ever done the doctrine of justification. And when I say justification, we all understand what that means but because we, we constantly spend time justifying ourselves. I don't know if you've ever had the privilege of somebody challenging you on something you've done or something you've said, but what happens next in your heart and usually what flows out of your mouth is you begin to justify what you have just done or what you just said. You want to maintain the appearance at least that you are actually a good person even though you've acted out in a certain way. And so that's why you justify yourself. I did it because. When we talk about the doctrine of justification, what we're talking about is what God does with our lives when we stand before Him, where He declares us innocent or not guilty. So when we talk about justification, that's what we're talking about. It's in the courtroom of God where He says, not guilty. And of course, we understand that the only way that that can happen is if someone has paid the price for our sins. And of course, we know exactly who has done that, God has sent His Son to die on a cross in our place for our sins. And through what He has done, and He has done alone, we are made right with God. We are justified. Now when we put our faith in Christ, we are brought into a relationship with God, and we hear this second long theological word, which is sanctification. And when we come to these passages, in Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8, He's talking about the process of sanctification. Now, if you've been coming on Wednesday night, you know what that means. That's just another word for the word holy. We are being made holy. In other words, we are being made like God or better, I think, we are taking on the character of God through this new relationship that we have with Him through Christ. Now, that too makes sense to us because if you're married, you realize after a period of time, you begin to take on the characteristics of your spouse. Unfortunately, after 26 years of marriage, my wife has become a lot like me in some not-so-good ways. And thankfully, I've become more like her, more patient and more kind and more careful with my words. But we've become like each other because we have this relationship. Abby's going to become a lot more like Nathan, and Nathan's going to become a lot more like Abby, and they're both grinning going, oh my. But when you come into a relationship with God through Christ you're going to become like Him. He's not going to become like you. He's going to work in amazing ways from the inside out, and you're going to begin to take on His character and put away your character. And that's simply referred to as the process of sanctification. We are being made like God through this new relationship that we have with Him. Now, in this process, you have responsibility. You have something to do. And Paul is trying to describe that for us because he's talking about two ways of living. He's talking about the old path, the way that we used to walk, and he's talking about the new path and the way that we should walk now. And he's got all these wonderful phrases that help us understand this newness of life. For instance, look at verse 16, the second half of verse 16. He uses the phrase resulting in. He says there in the half, second half of 16, either of sin resulting in death or 
obedience to God resulting in righteousness. So he's got this phrase and he used it, I think, about four times through these passages, helping us see that the way we live brings about results in our life. But then he begins to stack up words that mean very much the same thing. For instance, he uses the word benefit, which is just like the word result. He uses the word derive. And when you derive something, that too is a result. And then finally, he uses, I think, the most significant word in the passage, and that's the word outcome, which is just a word, another word or a synonym for the word result. He stacks up all of them. Notice with me in verse 21 and 22. Let me read through that again so you'll see what we're talking about. Paul says in contrasting the both ways of living, he said, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you're now ashamed for the outcome of those things is death. In other words, you were on a path and the results, the outcome, all of that pointed to one goal and that was death. Verse 22, though, is the difference now. But now having been freed from sin through your relationship with Christ and enslaved to God, watch his words, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome is eternal life. So in other words, Paul is saying the same thing over and over and over again because he's wanting you to understand that you're going to now live differently than the way that you lived before because you're producing something differently. Now all this language stuff, this makes sense to us because all of life is formed and fashioned around this way. Nathan courted my daughter for a particular outcome. And he's almost there. There was a result that he wanted and he went after that and he did the things necessary to achieve that result. And if you will think about that, all of life is that way. Some of you went off to college because there was a particular outcome or a particular result that you wanted. So you went through the process of that education to reach that outcome. Others of you didn't go to school. You found a job you thought you could do, you were interested in doing. So you went through the process of getting the training so you could obtain that job so it would provide for you the outcome that you wanted. We get married because we're convinced, right, that it will bring about a different, a, a, a special or a meaningful outcome for our life. We have children. In order to produce an outcome, we find joy or we're convinced we find joy in that. And then we turn right around and we train our kids in this same way of thinking. If, if you'll reason with me for just a minute, we model for them what it means to live what we are convinced is the right way in order that they might have an example. Then we teach them, we provide for them, we encourage them because we have results and outcomes in our minds for our kids, right? You see, all of life is arranged with this way of thinking. Results, outcomes, producing what we think is best for our life. So when you think about life, that's kind of the way that you think, right? What do I need to do to make this happen or make that happen? But when you're defining life in that way, it's not long before you realize that there is going to be a day when all the outcomes and all the results are submitted in because the total body of work has been accomplished because you stand face to face with death. If you think about life, it won't be long till you think about death and that's an absolutely normal thing, but I find it curious how much we avoid thinking about the reality of death when all the outcomes and results are submitted. I talked to a guy this week, in fact. He's younger than I am, 
and he's on 12 medications to prevent heart failure right now. He's several years younger than I am, and he did not want to talk about death. And well, we just avoid it. But I know it's crossed his mind. And I'm convinced that if we do stop running from it and face the reality of it, I think it will enable us to live a life with greater outcomes, even more significant outcomes, because they will be eternal outcomes and not just outcomes for this life. Now, keep following down the road with me. If we think about death, what are you inevitably going to think about? Eventually, you're going to think about God. I don't think anyone, if they're willing to be honest, if they think about death very long, don't come to the reality of God, and then you have to do something. Isn't that amazing how much that question weighs upon your soul? So much so that you find yourself in one or two camps. I mean, you put yourself in a camp because of the weight of that question. I'm believing or I'm disbelieving. You got the third group that likes to say, well, I'm undecided, but we know where we put them. You're either believing or disbelieving because the reality of that question weighs so much upon your soul. And you're so convinced of your position that you'll debate it, you'll discuss it, you'll argue it. But think about this now. No one really finds themselves putting them in a camp about the tooth fairy. That doesn't weigh upon your soul. We're all pretty much in the same camp. And if you're in a different camp, I don't know that I would tell anybody that. They have medication for that camp, right? But that's not a heavy question. It's kind of a joke. But the reality of God is no joke to anybody. I don't care who you are, where you are. You're serious about the camp in which you belong, right? You find yourself either believing or disbelieving. And so if you think about life and you think about death and you think about God, Ultimately, there's only one question that rolls over and over in your mind. And the question that lingers is this. Who does God accept? I mean, that's the only concern. If you find yourself in the camp of believing, even if you find yourself in the disbelieving, you wrestle with that question. Who does he receive? Who does he welcome? And so you have to answer that question. But here's a question that I think is even... I'll say equally important, if not more important, what resource are you going to use to answer that question? If you're ultimately going to wind up with who does God receive, I think even more important than that is how are you going to answer that question? And I think without question, almost everyone answers that for themselves, which I find absolutely fascinating, right? Because if you answer the question yourself, you're defining God for yourself. And you make the critical mistake that God says you'll make in the scriptures. And this is what God says in Psalms 50, 21. You thought that I was like you. And so the majority of people that wrestle with this question, wondering who will receive, they basically philosophically look in the mirror and define God. God happens to like the same things that I like. God welcomes and receives the same things that I welcome and receive. And God despises, hates, and rejects the very same things that I despise and hate and reject. How about that? God looks just like me. And so they answer that question by looking within themselves and they wind up creating their own God. How could you ever do that? 
That makes absolutely no sense. How could you use an English text to study to take a science test? If God is not like you, how do you think that you can define God from your own logic or your own intelligence? No, I think if you're going to be reasonable about, about this, you're going to have to have a more informed resource about coming about your definition of what God is like and who He receives. Right? Let me give you an illustration. Abby takes tests all the time. Let's say she walks in day one in a class, sits down, and it's some sort of math class. We'll say Cal 2, right? And she's sitting there. The guy walks up to the podium, and his very first statement is this. We're going to have a test tomorrow. Now here's the question, what's that going to be on? The guy leans over to Abby and whispers in her ear and says, it's going to be on the alphabet. Abby goes, sweet, I'm pretty comfortable with the alphabet. And so she gets up and leaves. To which we all respond, how foolish you would define what he's about to tell you yourself and trust in that so much that you walk out the door. Because who do you want to answer that question? Would it not be the teacher? Would you not stay in the room until he defines? Well, if you're going to give us a test tomorrow, what in the world is it going to be on? To which he responds, oh, it's going to be on Cal 1. I need, I need to make sure that you understand 1 before I can go on to 2. That's what everybody would do with any kind of sense. So why in the world would we choose to define God by our own standing, our own logic, what other people have said, everything else around us, without coming to the only informed source that we have, and it is the Word of God where He defines Himself. That is the only place that you can understand who He is and who He receives, right? So here's the question, what's His standard? What in the world is God's standard for us to have a relationship? And that... That makes perfect sense. I can tell you logically, I don't even have to turn to the text, but God receives those who are like Himself. Now think about this with me for just a minute, because we do exactly the same thing. Who are you in a relationship with? Are you in a relationship with plants? Now if I, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about Miss Burma. She does have a unique relationship with plants. She did that. She does that every Sunday. But her relationship is totally defined by her passion for them and her love for them. And that love and that passion in no way is returned to her. I'm sure she talks to them at some times, but if she ever tells me they talk back, I'm going to be very concerned about Ms. Burma. Right? Let's move from plants to animals because a lot of people are crazy about their animals. And I immediately thought of Brad. Has Brad got a relationship with Mike? Oh, Yeah. And for those of you who don't know, Brad's blind and, and Mike's his dog that leads him around every day. Does he have a special relationship with that dog? Without question. I would go so far to say that he loves that dog. And you might even say Mike loves him back, right? He, he gives his life to protect him. But is that relationship anything like Brad's relationship with Addie, his daughter? Now, if you make that comparison, there is something wrong with you because that is a very different relationship that Brad has with his daughter. Do you know why they have a special relationship where there's so much that's going in both directions is because they're so similar, they're just alike. They can have a unique relationship because they're so much alike, right? That's why we have relationships. That's why they're getting married because they're so much alike, they're so similar. 
Well, if you want to have a relationship with God, you've got to understand that we need to be like God. We ask the question, what is God like? What does he say in his word? What's the only word that God uses three times to describe himself? Holy, holy, holy. And he even tells us in his words what what holy means. It's, It's just being right, just, perfect in every word, in every thought. In every deed, that's what God is like. He is holy. Now, if you're going to be honest with yourself for any amount of time whatsoever, you and I both know you're not holy. Do you ever pay attention to what you're thinking about when you're driving down the road? Oh, that can get embarrassing real quick. Especially when somebody makes you mad. And then all of a sudden, in your mind, you've driven by them, you've jerked them out of their side window of the car, and you've bashed them on the pavement a couple of times and just let them flop on down the road as you keep on cruising. And then you're like, what in the world am I talking about? Or what in the world am I thinking about? You know? We all do that. In our minds, we have our boss held up in the air by his throat, shaking him. And then you're like, it's probably not the best thing for a Christian to do. So in your mind, you set him back down and... Clean it up by sharing the gospel with him so you can feel better about the day. And it's not just the things that roll through our minds. It's the things that come out of our mouth. My mouth, your mouth. And it's the things that we do. And you catch yourself on the other side of what you've just done and you go, why in the world did I just do that? So this is what we know about God. He is holy. And and by the way, if he was not holy, he would not be God. How in the world could we ever consider a God to be God who is not just and merciful and kind and compassionate and loving and forgiving and at the same time hold us accountable for all wrongdoing? If he can't do that, he's not God, but that's exactly the God that we have. And how in the world can we be in a relationship with him when we are nothing like him? Because we are not holy. Well, if you follow my thought and you've gone from life and death and God and the one question that lingers in your mind, who does he receive? I would encourage you to agree with God's diagnosis about you. And God's diagnosis about you is for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what God says about all of us. Every single one of us has fallen away from His holiness, and we've fallen into sin, and the condition is even far worse than that. Not only are we in sin, but Paul uses this phrase that we don't comprehend. We're enslaved to sin. We're in slavery. Now, again, I said this last week, you have nothing to relate that to because none of us, no one living, at least in this country, has ever been slaves. But if you remember when we were back in justification, I said this, until you understand the depth of your depravity, you'll never appreciate the greatness of God's grace. Remember me saying that? In fact, I know somebody buys into the doctrine of depravity if I can just hear them talk about grace. Because if they can't talk about grace without crying and without rejoicing, and weeping over the greatness of God's grace, they don't understand depravity. In the very same way, you and I don't understand the freedom that we have in Christ 
and the joy of that freedom until you understand the depth of your slavery. If you can get a hold of how enslaved you were before you met Jesus, then you'll get a hold of the joy that you should now have that you've been set free. And you won't be able to talk about that freedom without tears rolling down your face because you'll be so excited about what God has done on your behalf. But like I said, out of those nine verses that I just read, Paul uses slavery seven times. For instance, look at verse 17. He refers to this twice. Romans 6, verse 17, he says, But thanks be to God that though you were, what? Slaves of sin. You became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching or the gospel to which you were given over to or committed to. And having been set free. See that? Having been set or having been freed from sin. Paul says, I really want you to understand this. Before you met Christ, you were slaves to a way of living. And that way of living produced but one outcome, and the outcome of that was death. But you know, I think probably the most dangerous thing about all of that understanding is something that's hidden from you because before Christ you probably never considered yourself a slave. You think about this. How did you live before Christ? I did what I wanted, when I wanted. I lived by my own wisdom. I did my own thing. That doesn't sound like slavery at all, right? You see how dangerous this disease is? You're a sinner separated from God, but you don't realize you're enslaved to those things because you're doing exactly what you want to do. But you keep forgetting about the outcome of doing what you want to do. Look back at verse 20. God's Word tells you, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. In other words, you had no relationship to righteousness whatsoever. Verse 21, therefore, what benefit... Were you then deriving from the things of which you're now ashamed for the outcome of those things is what? Death. And you had no idea. You thought I'm absolutely free just chucking through life, doing whatever I want, whenever I want. You ask me any question, I'll define it the way I want. And you go, that, that's not slavery. But God says, yes, that is actually the worst form of slavery. Because you're absolutely free or separated from God and righteousness and eternal life. How in the world could you think you're free? Now you think the diagnosis is bad. Again, I bring you back to the prognosis. Look at Romans 6.23. This is the plainest, simplest description of how you were before Jesus that's ever put in Scripture for the wages or the compensation, literally the compensation of death, of sin rather, is death. There's no shorter form. There's no clearer way. That's it. What you earn for your way, for your sin, is simply this. It is death. But that's exactly why the gospel is such good news. Because that's exactly why Christ came. You see, God made Him who knew no sin to be sin on your behalf. And you come into this wonderful relationship that I've likened to a marriage so often. You come into this union where your husband, Christ, takes your sin and carries it to Calvary in order that he might receive your punishment. That's why the Son of God died. 
because your punishment was going to be meted out. And so he dies in your place. And what I've said the last two weeks or three weeks, what a mighty fine husband we have in Christ. He carries our sin to Calvary and he dies on our place in order to deliver his bride. See, what a glorious gospel that we have. This vital union that we have, this relationship that we come to God through the Son. And listen, not only does He save us from sin and death, but He also delivers us from slavery unto freedom. And now we're absolutely free to walk, to live, to have results, and to have outcomes that glorify God that results into eternal life. That's the part that we need to get now that we're in Christ. Don't just run out of here going, I'm saved, I'm saved. Understand the purpose of your salvation. And the purpose of it is so that you might walk in newness of life. In other words, you might walk now like Him. You're not who you once were. And you have to consider that and lay hold of that. In fact, that's the first word of instruction that he tells us now that we've been converted. He tells us to consider this. Settle it in your minds that you are not who you once were and you do not live how you once lived. Let me give you an example for that. Abby's last name is about to change. She's not going to be a Carol anymore. She's going to be a Hurley. And she's going to live differently. She's not going to live how... She's lived in my house for the last 20 years. She's going to live how they now have chosen to live together. And it's going to be different. Now let's say Abby's not going to consider this or lay hold of this truth that having been born again and come into a relationship with Christ, she's, I don't, she's just so unsure, right? She's so unsure about what's taking place that she's a new person. So this is what she does their very first night into their home. They eat dinner together. They do the dishes together. Watch a little TV together. It's time for bed. She gets up. She goes to the room, gets her little knapsack, puts her PJs in, starts walking out the door. And Nathan responds, honey, where are you going? And Abby says, well, I'm going home. I'm going to go to my bedroom. I'm going to sleep in my bed. To which Nathan would respond, are you kidding me? Why would you ever do that? Don't you understand what's taking place? To which Abby would respond, I understand we've got paperwork. We had it filled out at the courthouse. My dad, he married us. I know my last name has changed. But my bedroom at home is so comfortable and I love my PJs and I love my blanket. I'm just going to go home and spend the night there. Now that's not right, is it? It makes absolutely no sense to us. And she won't do that because she's really excited about getting married. She's buying into this thing, right? Why do we struggle so hard as new believers in Christ to buy into this new way of living? I'll tell you why. Because it's so much more comfortable where we came from. It's so much more comfortable to go back home, put on our old PJs, climb in our old bed, lay on our own pillow, and fall asleep just like we always fell asleep that whole time we were without Christ. That's exactly why we do that. And that's exactly why Paul is trying to teach us, no, you need to live in a different way. You need to live in a new way. Your life is meant to produce different results. You're not meant to produce death. You're meant to produce life. So why do you keep going home? 
Why do you keep going back? You need to settle it in your mind once for all that you've been married and you've come into this relationship with God through this faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and that has redefined your whole existence. You're being sanctified. You're being renewed. You're being recreated in the image of the one who died for you. You see, it's an entirely different way of thinking. It's an entirely different way of living. Now, I actually had somebody, because if you remember last week, I used the adoption illustration, right? Paperwork, sign, you've got the kids home, you're just waiting on them to call you mom or dad. And the moment they call you mom or dad is the moment that you realize, okay, they've bought into this thing. They've changed the way that they think. And I, I cannot impress upon you enough, and if I need to preach it again next week, I will. That's where step one starts for your new life in Christ. You've got to realize something. Until you change your mind about who you are now, you will never live differently. It'll always be a struggle for you. But anyway, somebody said last week, is it really that easy? Does it really just begin with me realizing that I've been born again in Christ? Yes, it's really that easy. But what makes it so stinking difficult is what I said just a moment ago. We're just more comfortable in the old way of living that we struggle to buy into the new way of living. What do we say? I've heard it from Christians so many times. I just can't live like that. <laughs> what? Are you kidding me? What do you think Nathan's going to do if Abby comes to that conclusion first night? I just can't, I can't live this way. I'm going to go back home. That would be a tragedy. Because all the newness and the excitement lies before her. Why don't she just go running headlong into it? You think she's going to bail out the first mistake she makes as a wife? I blew it. I ruined the meal. Going home to my dad. She actually wouldn't do that because I probably have complained a whole lot more about her cooking than Nathan ever will. He's not brave enough yet. Right? No, she's not going to do that. She's not going to bail out. What if she gets up in the morning and Nathan finally sees her without the makeup and the hair and he goes, Woo! <laughs> like to have known that before. She going to throw her hands up in the air and go back to dad? You can if you want to. <laughs> Why do we do that with our new way of living? Why do we when, we, when we fall flat on our face, when we say something we shouldn't say, well, why don't we throw up our hands in there and go, I just can't live like this. I'm like, are you kidding me? You've been set free from slavery. God has saved you from death, and now you're telling me you can't live this new way? Are you kidding me? No, you've got to settle this in your minds once and for all. I'm done with the old way of living. Now I'm going to live like my new husband and the model that he has set before me. So once we consider that, then we come to verse 13 and look at verse 13 as he compares and, and contrasts this new and old way of life. He says, do not go on presenting the members or yourself, the members of your body to sin as instruments of righteousness, but rather instead, it's very emphatic, present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. It's really that simple once you make up your mind. 
In other words, it's really that simple for Abby to go, I'm not going back home. I'm going to stay right here and continue to live my new life with my new husband. And you're like, how in the world can that be that simple? It, it's that simple because you are failing to realize that God has set you free from sin and death. Remember, if you don't understand slavery, you can't understand freedom. But if you put your faith in Christ, you have been set free. And now you can literally say, I am not going to present myself to my old way of living. Now I'm going to continually renew myself and present myself to God. And as you continue to live in that way, look at what you produce. Look at verse 22. One of the last things that he says in these passages, But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, being made like God's character, and the outcome of that is what? Eternal life. See what you have in Christ? But you also need to understand the responsibility that you have. There's responsibility here. This is not couch potato stuff. I'm so glad Jesus saved me. Now I'm just going to sit back in the lawn chair and sip on sweet tea and just wait for the day He calls me home. That's not what Scripture says. God says the first thing you need to do is you need to settle this in your mind once and for all. When you came to faith in Christ, His death becomes your death. His payment paid your price in full. And the life that He gives you is now life indeed. Once you get that settled, then you go about living as offering yourself to God continually. And when you do that, your life looks different because you have new outcomes. You have new results. Now, is it your result simply to get married because you find it more enjoyable? No, now the idea of marriage is not just so that you would find more joy out of life. The idea of marriage is so that you could glorify God through your marriage. Now it's not, okay, the outcome or the result I want is kids because I think kids will have fun. No, 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 no. Now, see, all of that's been redeemed. Now the result and the outcome is I'm going to have kids so I can pour into them the gospel so that they can spend their lives glorifying this great God who has saved us. You see, everything gets washed, cleaned, and redeemed. And all the things that you're pursuing, you want the outcome of a doctor? Yeah, that's a pretty good outcome. But how about something better, the outcome of being a doctor who glorifies Christ and speaks of Christ to the patients that she sees. I think our eyes are way too low when we think about life and we think about results and we think about outcomes. I think you need to lift your eyes up just a little bit higher. And I think you need to catch a glimpse of the glory of God. So that life for you can be defined by Christ and Christ alone. But let me take you back and then we're done. All this wonderful stuff that we're talking about this morning, this process of being made more like the character of God begins with justification. Because you're enslaved. And you can't produce anything but death. And you have no way out. And you know... If the reality of God is true, God, the only way possible that God could receive you is for that you be like Him in order that you be in a relationship with Him. 
And the only way that's possible is through the only means he's provided for that to happen. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. You do have to respond. You do have to turn from your sin. You do have to turn from yourself. You do have to turn away from being your own authority and your own God and turn to him in faith and trust. And I invite you to do that even now. Let's pray.